<laughs> ah, you make me feel good about life. Here we go. You know, this has been a joy to be with you all this week. I've absolutely loved it, and I want you to know that tonight we're going to talk about the most important thing you will ever hear in your entire life. We've been talking about truth all week, and if something's true, it's important, but there's some truths that are more important than other truths, and there are some truths that are the most important of all. And what we're talking about tonight is Jesus in your place. And that's the most important thing you'll ever hear about in your life. We've talked about the character of God, that we know truth because of who God is. God is the God of truth. And if you want to know truth, you need to go to the character of God. And everything is tested in its truthfulness relative to the character of God. And then we talked about the glorious truth that he gave us his word. And it's true. And it's life-giving because it points us to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The word inscripturated in words on a page points us to the word incarnate, God in flesh in Jesus Christ. And so we find life in the word because we find the one who is life through the word. And then we talked about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, that he came to his creation that he made with the Father and the Spirit, and he came to redeem lost people, fulfilling that promise that was told in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 that we started with on Sunday night and then prophesied for thousands of years, and finally the day came to over 2,000 years ago when Jesus became a man, a human being. He had to be that to represent us and to be our example in all things. We looked at the life and work of, and teaching of Jesus. And then we've talked now about the truthfulness of our sin. Our sin problem we talked about last night is something we need to come to terms with. It's something we need to understand and understand how much God hates sin and judges sin. And that's a good thing because he's a holy God and he's a just God. And if he could shrug his shoulders... In the face of sin and evil, what sort of God would that be? Not one I would want. And so we now tonight talk about Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. The Bible itself says this is central to everything that we need to know. This is what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. For what I received, see he didn't make it up, and I'm not making any of this up. You know, I realize that every time I teach... I'm not only teaching content and ideas and realities, I'm teaching how to get to these realities and these ideas and these truths. And I hope you have seen this week that we get to these truths through the scriptures. It's not just my opinion. It's grounded in scripture. I hope I've been doing the best job I possibly can to make it clear that these aren't Eric Tonis's opinions. These are the truths from God's word. I want to make them clear. I want to get them home into your lives, but I want it to be so undeniably clear that this is coming out of the Bible. And I have been so grateful for the, how attentive you've been, engaged you've been, respectful you've been. I'm serious. I am so 
humbled and grateful for how you have been this week. I, I love this group. I know I don't know most of you, but I'm so deeply grateful for your engagement, your enthusiasm, your desire to learn and grow. Even I've even talked to some of you who don't consider yourselves Christians, but you're here respectfully seeking to learn and grow. And God loves that. And God will reward that. And I believe God will lead you to himself when you stay open and don't harden your heart. But here's what Paul says. I received this, right? And what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is that? That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. He fulfilled in dying for our sins what God promised he would bring about to save us from our sins. According to the scriptures, that he was buried. He really was dead. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. I'm so thankful our wonderful worship team has been emphasizing the gospel all week, including the resurrection, and it thrills my soul to hear you exalt in the raised Christ that we serve. It's just been awesome to hear when we sing about the resurrection, your hearts express your joy in that fact. We indeed serve a risen Savior, and we're going to talk about that. So the, the death of Jesus in our place, the resurrection on our behalf that conquers sin and death and hell Again, on the third day, according to the scriptures, is what Paul says is of first importance. He, he says also to them that he, he sought to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified, which is an interesting thing to say because he actually sought to know lots of things among them. You know, what their marriages should look like and how their churches should function and how they should love each other. And, and he tells people all kinds of things, you know, how, how to take care of the, uh, of the church and the people. He, he teaches all sorts of things. But what he's saying here is this is a relative statement. The rest of that stuff, the way you live your life, what we'll talk about tomorrow night, if it's disconnected from Jesus in our place, call the whole thing off. You're missing the entire point if you miss Jesus dying for us and rising for us. And so I want to let Jesus speak for himself. Once again, John chapter 10 is where we'll pick up our journey, our flyover in the gospel of John, which is what we're doing this summer here at Hume in Pondy. And we got another passage. We, we saw one in John chapter 10 last night. We're going to read several. And, and again, I, I want to tell you, when I read the Bible, it's so often disconcerting to me, upsetting to me, how I watch people check out. When the Bible's the only thing you're going to hear straight from God. So that's when you should pay attention more than the other time. And I've watched you all stay engaged as we've been reading big old chunks of Scripture. You know, I had, I had one preaching class in my whole life for half a semester, and I had two, it was a team talk class, great prof, but I'll never forget the, 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 the preaching prof, there was a communications prof and a preaching prof, but the, Kent Hughes was the preaching prof, and, and he said one sentence to me that was worth the whole class. He said, Eric, after my first sermon in that class, he said, you know what your problem is? You read the Bible as if it applies to what you have to say, instead of Everything you say, obviously, applying to what the Bible says. 
So we need to read the Bible and listen to the Bible as if it is the only thing that's coming straight from God, which it is. And thank you for how I have not sensed you checking out when we've been reading big chunks of the Bible this week. More than you're probably used to. You know, our church has reading services where before we'll preach through a, a, a book of the Bible, we'll have an entire service where we do nothing but read through what we're going to preach through for the next hour, for an hour. We'll work in some, some solitude and some reflection and some singing but, and praying, but it's mostly just straight scripture. And we've seen a subculture develop in our church with, with a long attention span and a willingness to listen to the Bible. And so thank you for how wonderfully you've done that this week. I, I've been so encouraged by that. But here we go. We're going to read some chunks. Stay with me. We're going to let God speak for himself. Here we go. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 7. Listen to the brilliant Jesus once again. I hope you're falling in love more deeply with Jesus every time we hear him teach. He's awesome. Listen. John 10, 7. Then Jesus has said again to them, truly, truly. Now you've been hearing that preface to his statements, truly, truly. These are these, these two Greek words, amen, amen. We say amen, right? And it's, it's sort of unfortunate we, we can throw that term around because when, when you say amen, 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 in this context, it's, it's like saying the Old Testament equivalent of thus says the Lord. This is reality. This is truth. Count on it. I mean, it is a, it is a bold way to start your statements. And Jesus says it twice. Should probably be a little more careful the way we use amen, you know. Hey, nice day. Amen. She's cute. Amen. And, and yeah, she may be, but it's not quite as weighty as this is intending to be, right? Okay, so um, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, dear ones. You have, may have noticed an intensity when I preach, a concern when I preach, and it's because I really believe there is a thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And I want you to realize that and to not go that way and to find the life that Jesus brings rather than the destruction that the devil brings. That's what I want for you deeply. That's what Jesus offers. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and he does it in incredibly persuasive ways. He's called the angel of light. He's really impressive. He's really cool. I mean, when you think of these caricatures of the devil with horns and a tail, and nobody's going to fall for that. No, satanic influence, demonic influence comes in persuasive and charming and interesting and cool ways. Wrapped up in really impressive packages with no warning attached. I mean, you read things, you see things on social media that are drawing you away from God and from life. 
And it never gives you a disclaimer or a warning. You, you never read a book that, that is a bestseller that's leading you in an anti-Christ way with an introduction that says, beware because in the following chapters you're going to find lies that will ruin your life. You need to be able to spot them yourself. And that's what we're trying to equip you with this week is a recognition that there's an enemy who's after your soul who prowls around, the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking who he'll destroy. We're in a war every day, and I want you to win the war by going to the warrior we desperately need, and that's Jesus who wins the war on our behalf. I came that... He came to, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. In other words, it's, it's not just the Jewish people. It, it's people of every nation. Tongue and tribe were part of this. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See how in control Jesus is? He is going to look like a helpless victim. We'll see. But he's making clear that when he looks like a helpless victim, he's completely in charge. You know, there's this scene in the Gospels where Jesus is standing next to Pilate and he's been beaten all night, unrecognizable. And Pilate says, behold the man. I think he says that because they can't recognize him because of the severity of his beating on our behalf. He says, this is who you're asking for, right? This is Jesus. And he keeps asking Jesus questions, and Jesus isn't answering him. He freezes him out, and Pilate gets ticked off, and he says, aren't you going to answer me? Don't you know I have the authority to hand you over to be killed? And Jesus finally speaks, and you know what he says? You have no authority that isn't given to you. He says, I'm in charge here, Pilate. I know it looks like you're in charge, but you're not. I am laying down my life for my sheep. I could call down a legion of angels right now and end this whole thing. But I'm going to the cross. That's where I set my face, and that's where he went, and that's what he did. And he is the good shepherd who lays down his life voluntarily, lovingly, even joyfully knowing what it will accomplish. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews. This is still controversy. Many of them said, he has a demon, and he's insane. 
Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's true physically and spiritually. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. And there's controversy and there's conflict and there's plotting to have him killed. Jesus wasn't put on a cross because he was a nice guy. He's put on a cross because he said he was God and he said he was the only way to God. Next chapter, 11, verse 17. Eleven seventeen of John. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, his friend, had already been in the tomb four days. He died. His friend died. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I need to ask you a question. I know you're young. I know you feel immortal. I remember when I was your age. I really do. And I felt immortal. And I did really stupid things based in feeling immortal that I shouldn't have done. I took big risks. But even though I know most of you feel like you're never going to die, you are. And God has brought a curse into this world that includes death as a punch in the gut to wake you up and cause you to live for something besides this world because we're all dying, every one of us. Do you have an answer to death? Do you have a solution to death? I know death, no doubt, has touched some of your lives and your families in grievous and harmful ways. Some of you may not have ever gone to a funeral of someone close to you yet in your life. But we all need an answer for, for death, and Jesus is that answer. It's the ultimate enemy, but Jesus doesn't uh, come to terms with the ultimate enemy, death. He overthrows it. He defeats it. He conquers it in his resurrection. Chapter 14. Let's continue to let Jesus speak for himself. 14.1. Here we go. Isn't this great? Oh, I love this. I think God loves this. We're gathered around his words, seeking his truth. Here we go. John 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Do you hear how often the word believe is used? It's the starting point of a relationship with God, believing him taking him at his word, believing he's true. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Put your trust, your faith in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that I, 
that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is the one whose sacrifice and resurrection is sufficient to bring us to the Father in forgiveness of sins and restored relationship with him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. One more, John 18. Hang in there, guys. This is glorious. We're just hearing right from Jesus. John 18, verse 33. 18:33. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say that of your own accord, or did the others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now what he's saying is not that his kingdom doesn't rule and reign over the world. He's saying my kingdom isn't worldly. It's not based on this system that's just locked into human incapabilities. His kingdom is coming from heaven. It's coming from above. That's why when Peter says you're the Christ, you're son of the living God, Jesus says flesh and blood. The world didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but you got that from heaven. My heavenly Father reveals this to you. And he says, my kingdom's not operating the way yours does, Pilate. It's coming from a different source, a different place, a supreme authority, God himself. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Spoken word piece called him a crazy man. He was a notorious criminal. Everybody knew he was an insurrectionist. He was a notorious criminal trying to overthrow Rome, and Rome was going to execute him for all the trouble he had caused. And the people cry out for this known criminal to be released and a man in whom there is no sin to be executed. 
Over the years, I have come to really relate to Barabbas, a man who is truly guilty, let go and set free, and Jesus died in his place. I I feel like I should change my name to Barabbas sometimes because his story is my story. I deserve death. And Jesus took that death instead of me. And that's what happened. They scream out, crucify him. These people who had been saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord just a week earlier on Palm Sunday are now screaming out, crucify him. And this innocent man goes to a cross on our behalf. And Jesus takes our place. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus in our place. And Paul puts it this way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We had an exchange for the glory of God, for the glory of ourselves, the creature that we, saw, we heard about last night. And now we have another exchange where Jesus takes our sin on his shoulders and bears the wrath of God and the judgment of God on his shoulders so we can be set free. He bore the penalty for our sin. And before he did that, he lived for us. Jesus didn't just die for you. I've got news for you. He lived for you. And the sufficiency of Christ in our place is this glorious truth that we rest in at the anchor of our lives. But now he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time. He's coming back, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those who have had their salvation found in Jesus are those who are waiting for him to return, to finish the work once and for all. Jesus' penalty He paid for us. He didn't deserve, but we did. And so he is sufficient, not only in his death, but in his life as well. I want you to understand this. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. We talked about sin being disobedience, being unrighteousness. But Jesus' perfect, obedient life takes the place of our disobedient lives. Listen listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every single disobedient act you've ever committed, thought you've ever had, intention over your heart you've ever had, Jesus not only dies for that, he lives in righteousness so that you're not just forgiven, you are declared righteous in God's sight. You don't just squeak by with a clean slate. You walk into heaven with your head held high because you walk into heaven with the righteousness of Christ himself given to you, which is the righteousness of God. I think if Satan convinces you that you're 98% forgiven and 80% righteous, I think Satan wins. You need to realize that Jesus takes our place completely with no sin left to be forgiven and no righteous deed left to be done. Jesus takes our place in his perfect life of obedience. Here's another passage that bears that out. Philippians 3.9. We are to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, belief, that we've, word we've been seeing over and over again, in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not the religious things you do, not the moral things you do, not the things you even do in obedience to Christ become part of your forgiveness and salvation. Jesus, Jesus paid it all. What a beautiful song to sing right before we preach this message. Jesus paid it all. And his death, as well as his life, is sufficient on our behalf. Christ died for sins once for all. Do you hear how finished it is? Jesus hung on the cross and he says, it is finished. That's what he does in our place. He goes to a cross and he dies in our place. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He takes your place in his death and his resurrection. His glorious resurrection. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's what we see in Jesus' glorious resurrection. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Actually, let's back up and look at 1928. 1928, Jesus dies in our place. After this, Jesus knowing, 1928, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it says that that's a word the Messiah says. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And he's buried, as you can see at the end of this chapter, and then listen to this glorious news of the resurrection in 21. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. As for yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must Rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. Jesus rises from the dead. And when we put our faith in him, we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. We are identified with him by faith. With nothing left to earn, nothing left to prove, nothing left to demonstrate, nothing left, left to make ourselves worthy. No, Jesus does it all in our place. 
Tim Keller puts it this way. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If he conquered death, if he validated everything he did and said by rising from the dead just like he said he would, that is a radical affirmation of the legitimacy of his person and his work on our behalf. It provides a victory over death. It shows us that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And we now have resurrection power that could be ours by faith. It's a power ultimately over sickness and sin and cynicism and self-pity and persecution and disappointment and doubt and spiritual dryness and depression and despair and even death. And we get there by faith. He saves us by faith in him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Jesus paid it all. And I want you to hear that there's no sweeter message you'll ever hear than that Jesus paid it all. He did everything you could ever need him to do to make you everything God created you to be. You don't need to go to bed tonight in despair. You don't need to go to bed tonight in loneliness. You don't need to go to bed tonight believing that you're going to be mired in your addiction or your sin or your besetting problems the rest of your life because Jesus comes to bring freedom and life. He brings the best news you'll ever hear. You don't need to wake up tomorrow morning miserable or depressed or anxious, estranged before a holy God. You can go to bed tonight, tonight, with a quietness in your soul knowing that you've been forgiven, with a shalom that you've never experienced before maybe, knowing that the God who created you, who's a holy God and a just God, is at peace with you because you've trusted his means of peace with him through Jesus. You can go to bed tonight knowing that every sin you've ever committed is paid for, forgiven, and that you are declared righteous in the sight of Almighty God because of the death of his son. My son is fascinated with Secret Service agents. One time we were watching President Obama, and my son said, Dad, who are the dudes in the sunglasses? And I said, oh, Sam, those are Secret Service agents. And he said, Dad, I must know about them. And so I love, to, I love curiosity. I think it's a gift. And it's something we should all try to cultivate. And so when one of my kids is curious, I will feed that curiosity. So I went and found a documentary on Secret Service agents. I did, and we watched it together. And we got about halfway through, and it was talking about the Reagan assassination. At the Washington Hilton Hotel, 1980, Ronald Reagan is leaving the hotel, and he waves to the crowd right here, about a second and a half after this moment, a man named John Hinckley, who actually two weeks ago was just released from prison, um, and, and, but he's waved, and about a second and a half after this wave, 
a man named John Hinckley is standing in the crowd to your right. And he fires his pistol six times, unloads it at the president. A bullet ricochets off the president's limousine and goes into his lung and almost kills him. The Secret Service agent right behind Reagan pushes him into the limousine, lays on top of him, and they speed away. The reason Reagan didn't get killed is because this man on the right is named Timothy McCarthy. He was a defensive end at the University of Illinois became, became, before he became a Secret Service agent. But he is standing there. And when the bullets started firing, everybody started diving for cover, hiding behind cars, hitting the ground, covering up, doing everything they could possibly do to get out of the line of fire from where they heard it coming. Do you know what Timothy McCarthy did? I'll show you what he did. That's him. This is what he did. You see everybody scrambling, getting out of the way? You know what he did? He heard where the bullets were coming from, and he turned to the direction of the bullets and made himself as large as he possibly could. And that's what happened. He took a bullet intended for the president. Saved his life. It punctured his lung. It almost killed him, but he survived. When we got to this point in the documentary on about Secret Service agents, it froze the frame there. That's why it's such a bad picture. It's just from a screen grab. And they interviewed a Secret Service agent. And he said, what Timothy McCarthy did defies every human instinct. It, it defies all the human instincts of self-preservation that are very natural. Nothing wrong with it. it it's, it's good to avoid danger, right? But the Secret Service agent they interviewed said, what Timothy McCarthy did was what he was trained to do. That defied his natural instincts of self-preservation. He had to have everything rewired to turn in the direction of the danger and take a bullet right in the chest. We got to this point in the documentary, and my son looked over at me, and tears are just streaming down my face. And he goes, Dad, are you okay? I bet some of you might have an idea of why I was so moved by that scene. That's what Jesus did. He made himself big. He looks like a helpless victim, but when he's dying on a cross in our place, he is doing the most powerful, strong thing a human being's ever done, dying for the sins of the world. You know, it was a battle. The Bible says he had to learn obedience from the things he suffered. Like that Secret Service agent, he trains himself through obedience, through constant practice of acting out God's word so that when he's finally in the garden, at, before he goes to the cross, remember what he says? Lord, if there's any way this pass, cup could pass from me, if bearing your wrath and dying for the sins of the world and being considered cursed on behalf of cursed people, 
in their place, if there's any way this cup could pass for me. But you know what he then says? What does he say next? Not my will, but your will be done. In a final incredible gesture of the most unselfish thing we've ever seen in human history, Jesus lays down his life. He makes himself big. And he dies in our place. He takes the hit for us. That's what he does. And he says it's finished as he's doing it. It's finished. And he meant it. It really is. I want you to know, you desperately need a Savior. You may be a Christian. You may, be, may have trusted Jesus, maybe when you were five years old. But I would love for you to leave here tonight with a deeper understanding of how desperately you needed Jesus to take the hit for you. You needed to, or you had hell to pay. And if you're not convinced you are truly in a relationship with Jesus, you, you're not convinced you've truly gotten to the point in your life where you said, yeah, I recognize this sin in my heart, this, this instinct to be my own king, to run my world for myself and not even let God have rule over my heart. If you recognize that instinct and you've never gotten to the point where you, you've said, all right, not I but Christ. Not my sin, not myself, not all my good works, but Jesus in my place and finding the freedom and the life and the joy that brings. If that's where you are tonight, I want you to know you desperately need a Savior. And Jesus joyfully came and lovingly came to save you from your sin. You don't need to live the way you have been, even if it's been fun some of the time. Life's more than fun. Even if it's been successful academically or athletically or socially or whatever, life is so much more than that. Life is about a relationship with God through Jesus that gives you a life of freedom and security and significance in him so you don't have to claw for that anymore and seek your own way anymore. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for you. If that's you tonight, I don't want you to leave here without trusting Christ once and for all. He died for the sins of the world once and for all. And until you make that yours through faith in him, collapsing in the finished work of Jesus in the arms of Jesus, it's not yours until you do that. So I want to plead with you as a father's heart pleads to trust Jesus tonight. And I actually want to give you an opportunity to do it right now with no drama, no manipulation. Uh, and I want you to know that the Christian life is a very personal thing, but it's never a private thing. It's never a private thing. It's public as can be. Christians are supposed to be proclaiming Christ from the rooftops. And I believe how you're saved often dictates the way you live out your salvation. And I think it's a great way to start your relationship with Jesus by doing it publicly. So I just want to ask you, no manipulation, no drama. If you're sitting there tonight and you've come to the realization, yeah, I've, I've never gotten to that point where I'm done with my sin and I want Jesus as my Savior and the Lord of my life. If that's you tonight, I want to pray for you. If that's what you want to do tonight, everybody clear on what I'm asking now? That's what you want to do tonight. I'm going to ask you to stand up so I can pray for you. Would you stand up if that describes you?
see you guys. Stay right there. I want to pray for you. Lord, I'm grateful that you're still saving sinners because I, I know I needed to be saved and it, it, it's all that matters. And Lord, I'm grateful for these dear young men and women who stood up tonight and, and expressed a desire to walk with Jesus and, and allow him to be the substitute, sacrifice, and penalty paid for their sins and the righteousness they need. And Lord, I, I don't know them. But you do. You knitted them together in their mother's wombs and you made them fearfully and wonderfully made. And you made them for yourself. And Lord, I'm grateful that tonight they've realized that and that they want to be yours. And they want to belong to you through your son you sent. And Lord, I'm grateful for their willingness and their courage to do it in front of their friends, in front of the people here. Lord, that's a good start. And so, Lord, I pray your hand of protection. There will be attacks now from earthly sources and spiritual sources. And so, Lord, I pray that they'd be on guard and put on the word and the church and fellowship and prayer and worship as weapons of warfare. Lord, help them to know you're with them and you're for them every day of their lives. Protect them, Lord. I pray you'd bring godly people around them to help them walk this journey of life with you, both up in the balcony and both sides, Lord. These who stood, Lord, I pray that you would be powerfully working in their lives and drawing them closer to you and using them mightily to draw others to you as well. And I pray your great blessing on them, and I'm thankful for them, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And, here, and here's what I want everybody who stood up and everybody who is a believer here tonight to know. Jesus didn't just die for you. He continues to live for you. Jesus continually represents his people based on his atoning work on the cross. Listen to this glorious verse. Who is to condemn? If you feel condemnation and you're a child of God, that's coming from the pit of hell. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, interceding for you. This is how the author to Hebrews puts it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to know, those dear ones who stood up tonight and those who've trusted Jesus, that Jesus didn't just die for you, he lives for you. He's for you now, and he's for you forever. And he's your great high priest and your advocate. And he will plead your case before the throne of God and the throne of judgment every second of every day in your life. And he pleads your case with evidence from his life, not yours. And that's great news. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus wasn't just for you then. He's for you now and forever. And that's the best news in the world. Lord, help us to know how for us you are. Lord, I thank you 
that we can trust the ongoing ministry of Jesus. Every second of every day, we never go it alone. He's in our corner. He's our champion. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I'm grateful for Jesus. I'm grateful that that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together to produce saving faith in hearts and that some tonight have gone from darkness into light, from death into life. And we thank you and pray this in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.